Maybe you've uh, had this experience where you've started watching a movie. Maybe it's one you know a little bit about. You kind of have heard from your friends what uh, is involved in the movie. So you, you know enough about it and you know enough about the characters that you kind of got a feel for what's going to happen. You don't know enough details, but... Now it's on. Okay. All right. I'm not going to start over. I'm sorry. That, that, that was probably my, my best. No. <laughs> um, what I would hope that you can take away this morning, if nothing else, is a three-word phrase that maybe you've heard before, um, but it sounds a little contradictory. And it's the phrase that's found in Psalm 2. It says, Rejoice with trembling. Well, think about that. Rejoice with trembling. It sounds kind of contradictory, doesn't it? Um, rejoicing, you think about that word, it conjures up the idea of, of joy and cheerfulness and, and happiness. While trembling, uh, you know, I think of, of fear, of being afraid, of terrified. But rejoice with trembling is an idea that is really highlighted in stress, I think, and the main takeaway that I want us to have as we go through this chapter. This chapter is structured to, to highlight the rhythms and the, and the contrast uh, that the writers of Second Samuel want us to, to understand. Uh, I gathered from commentary I use that this chapter is neatly divided into two sections. There's 23 verses. The first 11 are one section, and the remainder uh, are the second section, sec- section. And each one can be, you can see a pattern for each one. There's a, a bringing up of the ark. There's an uh, expression of joy uh, that's displayed. Then there's a tragedy. And then we see... David's reaction, and then there's a look at a, at a household, one is uh, in, in each section. So keep that in your mind as well, uh, but in the middle of, that, of these verses, or in the middle of this chapter, verse 12a is what we call the, the hinge verse. So we're going to look at it that way and uh, see what ha- the Lord has for us. So this event, really, that happens... Um, really stops David in his tracks. It's like he wasn't, the, the God that he knew was someone else. He, he had to grapple with the death 
of Uzzah that we'll look at. His reaction was one of, of anger and of fear of the Lord. He even distanced himself from him. So let's go ahead and jump into uh, the verses. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 5 as we uh, look into this chapter. It says, David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. So, this, this chapter is sandwiched into really two significant uh, events in the life of David and the nation of Israel. We saw last week, as God allowed uh, David and uh, the nation of Israel to capture Jerusalem... As Phil pointed out, that was uh, God keeping a long promise to, uh, to his people that Jerusalem and Zion would be uh, the place where he would, he would dwell with the people. And then next week, we'll look at uh, the Davidic covenant where God promises to uh, build from David a lasting dynasty. But here in between those two chapters, we see this... Uh, story of David wanting to bring the ark to Jerusalem. And why is that significant? It's significant because he wanted to make Jerusalem the center of of worship. The ark had been pretty much forgotten uh, for about 20 years. That... um, Says it's a parallel passage. Several chapters in Chronicles um, detail this these stories as well. But it says there that we did not seek it in the days of Saul. So the ark has been pretty much shelved for about twenty years. It's been in the house of uh, Abinadab. And uh, let's just review a little bit about the the ark. You know, it symbolized the presence of God with His covenant people. It was actually uh, regarded as a type of Christ. It was a rectangular box that was overlaid with pure gold, both, both inside and outside. There were two cherubim that um, were on the, the top of it, and looking at the mercy seat where God would, would meet with his people. Um, the, the cherubim faced inwards towards one another. And inside were the Ten Commandments, Aaron's rod, a, a jar of manna, manna, and around each corner of the base of the ark were four rings with which to carry the ark. So there were precise instructions that had been given in Numbers 4 of how to care for and transport the ark. We'll look at that a little bit more in, later. But the, the history of the ark in Samuel, if you remember... Back, back in 1 Samuel, when the uh, Israelites were uh, about to go to war with the Philistines, 
they uh, come up with a great idea that maybe if they brought the ark, the ark would give them uh, success. So they bring the ark into the camp, and there's this great roar, and the Philistines hear it, and they think that they, they're uh, rousing their God for the, for the battle. And the Philistines end up defeating Israel in that battle, and they capture the ark, remember? They capture the ark, and they take it into their temple, set it up beside the, the, uh, their god, Dagon. And what happens the next, next morning? They go in, and Dagon has fallen on his face, and his head's, his head's fallen off. So they think uh, they put two and two together and say, this is probably not a good idea. <clears throat> and then uh, tumors and all kinds of uh, physical maladies break out on the Philistines. They send it around numerous places um, and finally decide this, this ark is not for us. We're going to send it back to Israel. And sure enough, they put it on a cart and send it off. And it goes to a town called Beth Shemesh where 70 men look inside the ark and immediately are, are killed. So it finally ends up in the house of Abinadab and as I said, it was there, another town, another name for, for the, we see there in verse 15, it was Baal Judah, but Kiriath-Jerim is the, the other name for, for where the house of Abinadab was. But, so it's, it's there, it's been there for 20 years. Uh, so David is now desiring to bring the ark back to Jerusalem and back to public prominence. And it's a good intention. There was nothing... Uh, wrong with uh, the plan and the desire on David's part to, to make the ark another uh, the, the prominent uh, part of the worship of God. Uh, he involves the leaders. says he gets 30,000 chosen men. Not sure exactly who they are, but uh, he wants to involve them, the people, a new cart. Hey, if the Philistines can do a new cart, we can do one as well. Sounds like a good idea. And um, they, they worship as they're bringing the cart along. They commission Ahio and Uzzah to transport it. One walked in front. Maybe the other one walked behind or beside. Many think that this was, he, he timed this event to coincide with one of the three great feasts. So um, it was a joyous occasion. It was it was meant well and intended to to uh, honor the Lord and, and bring bring it back to Jerusalem. But then a bad thing happens on the way to Jerusalem. Let's read verses six through eleven, where we see, and when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down there because of his error, and, there, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite, and the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Uh, 
So all seems to be going well. Apparently, as it said several times, that uh, the house of Abinadab was on a hill, so maybe they had finally made it down to the hill and reached uh, a, the threshing floor. I don't know if threshing floors <clears throat> typically have wagon ruts in them or, or whatever, but the, uh, the, the, the oxen stumble for some reason, the cart tilts, the ark slides, and Uzzah does what anyone would do. He reaches out to steady the ark and immediately is struck by God. Now, critics have explained this, uh, this tragedy in a number of ways. Some think maybe he, he had a heart attack from his excitement. Some, uh, maybe the soldiers killed him for some reason. Um, others even postulate that that uh, the ark had some electrical charges or whatever that uh, came out. <laughs> but it's clearly the hand of God, and David knew it. David knew a breakout when he saw one, uh, and, so, and he named it that way. If you remember last week when we saw that uh, the nation of Israel defeated the Philistines, they, uh, God broke out against the Philistines, and David... Uh, named, named the Lord, named a place where he did that uh, on that occasion. So, so David knew when God, when it happened that this was all of God. And he was totally shocked. Totally shocked by God's action. Why would God do that on such a glorious occasion? Weren't they honoring God by this effort? Why did this happen? Well, it's not explained here, but in, again, back in, in Chronicles 15, 12 to 13, David specifically says that, he says, because you, and he's referring to the Levites and specifically the Kohathites, because you did not carry it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us because we did not seek him according to the rule. But why so severe a judgment? You know, we kind of want to believe that Uzzah had it coming to him. Uh, you know, maybe he never really liked taking care of the ark for those years. Uh, perhaps he'd kind of grown used to it. Uh, he didn't revere it anymore. Maybe he was possessive of it. He didn't like the idea of it, of it leaving. Or he could have even cursed or taken the name of the Lord in vain when it happened. It's not real clear, not real sure, but... But did the, fun, the punishment fit the crime? Well, as I said, in Numbers chapter 4, the Lord gets very specific on how the, Lord, how the ark is to be handled. The Kohathites, another clan of the, the Levites, they were the only ones who were allowed to deal with and, and carry the ark. Any time the tabernacle and the nation of Israel were, were, were moving... They were the ones who were charged with going into the Holy of Holies. They were to, they were to cover the ark with goat skins, and they were to put another covering of blue on the ark. They were not to look in it. They were not to touch it. They were not to put it on a cart. Again, the, the rings on the four corners were designed for them to put poles through which which to, to carry. And God did this, or it says that they may live and not die. So God was giving specific instructions for their protection. 
But not only was it sacred because of its contents, but its significance, meaning, and purpose displayed God's grace toward his people. I like what Dale Davis says about the, the meaning of the, the ark. He says it, it demonstrates God's rulership, it highlights his, our reconciliation, and it also speaks to our, of his revelation. First Chronicles 28.2 calls the Ark of the Covenant the footstool of our God. So if it's the footstool, then, in, then God must be king. He must be the one who is ruling over all. And that ruler over all is, God's, is Israel's God's God. And certainly on the Day of Atonement, when the blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat, it was showing how God was reconciling people to himself. And then by way of revelation, it contained the Ten Commandments, disclosing God's will for his people. So it wasn't that it was just a holy uh, chest, but that it had significance and meaning, and it was to be regarded uh, for what it, what it signified. Well, why couldn't God be merciful? It seemed like he could cut Uzzah a little bit of slack. After all, he was trying to keep it from hitting the ground. Why couldn't he be merciful? Well, really, when you think about it, he was. Because it wasn't not only, not only Uzzah, but Ohio, David, and everyone was guilty. They were carrying the ark in a procession and seeing it with their eyes. But not only was he merciful... He was just. For Uzzah did touch the ark, and he was made an example. It was clear that God was intending to show that we are to treat holy things with, holy, with, with reverence and holy fear. And a good intention doesn't justify a bad action. And all this certainly points to the fact that there's only one who doesn't deserve God's wrath. One that God broke through on so that we could receive the mercy that uh, the mercy instead of experiencing the wrath of God that we deserve. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. So David's reaction though was one of anger and fear. David names the place Perez Uzzah, which means the breaking out against Uzzah. And he's so afraid that he's unwilling to bring the ark into the city. I guess he's fearful that if he goes any further, other, other breakouts will occur. But David really should have humbled himself at this point and confessed his sin and sought the Lord about why this happened. He's really not acting like a man after God's own heart. So, as a result, they take it to the house of Obed-Edom. And God blesses this man and his house. And uh, it says he's a Gittite, which means he's from Gath, but it doesn't mean that he's a, he's a Philistine. He's uh, likely a Levite. Uh, and while it's there, only three months, uh, God begins to bless this man and his household. And the idea of being blessed, and being blessed is probably being uh, disclosed in the fertility of his fields, of his flock, and his family. 
And notice it mentions five times that he's blessing the house and the household of Obed-Edom. God's really displaying his favor uh, towards his, this family. We're not sure. It can't be uh, real certain, but in 1 Chronicles 26, it talks about another, a person named Obed-Edom who has 62 sons. Now, obviously, all of those sons were not conceived in three months, but it is uh, an indication that God was blessing this man. So, word gets back to David that God has blessed this household. And so, in verse 12, the first part of that verse, it says, And it was told King David, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. No doubt, during these three months, David and the Levites determined the proper way to move it. So, they say, let's try this again. So, let's read now verses 12 through 19. So it says, So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. So this time, David and the Levites and all of his leaders get it right. If you looked in First Chronicles, there it's pretty pretty detailed as to how David went about it this time when bringing up the Ark of the Covenant. It says only the, the Levites were going to be allowed to, to bring it. It says they consecrated themselves. They did carry it on poles this time. The Levites appointed the, the musicians to, to sing and play and, and uh, worship as the, as the ark was being uh, transported. And notice that right after they move, they begin the, the move, they pause and they make sacrifices to the Lord. And this is no doubt in acknowledgement of their previous error as well as an expression of, of help and dependence on the Lord, as well as probably giving thanks for how the Lord had blessed the house of Obed-Edom. And then David is seen and uh, explained that he's, he's dancing and he's dressed in a linen ephod. This dancing was really just a natural expression of his great joy. It was a joy of obedience and of conformity God's directives. And the linen ephod uh, indicates that he set aside his royal attire 
so that he could minister to the ark. He really was lowering himself as just one of the common people and, and, and showing his, his love and a devotion uh, to the Lord in a way that uh, didn't put any of the attention on him as much as on the Lord. And then they bring it into to Jerusalem. He has erected a, a tent. This is not the tabernacle, but it's a special tent that he erects that is um, in a location where all the people can come and, and worship. He didn't bring it and put it uh, where he lived, but uh, he made it accessible to all the nation. And then when he comes in, when, it, when they bring it in and set it in his place, again, they offer burnt offerings and peace offerings in thankfulness and continuance of his blessings. And this is probably when Psalm 132 was penned. If you have a chance to look at that psalm, it really is uh, indicative of the fact that uh, bringing in the ark uh, to Jerusalem. Next, he blesses the people in the name of the Lord. He prayed that God would bless them and reward them. And he let them know that they had a king who loved them. Then he distributed uh, portions of the peace offerings to all the to all the people who were there. And what a great uh, display of, of uh, the king who not only was going to be their shepherd, not only who was going to defend them, but a, but a godly man who wanted to uh, see the Lord bless his people. And he was one who wanted to lead in that endeavor. And then uh, the last, he returns to bless his own household. Let's read verses 20 through 23. It says, And David returned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. It's pretty amazing that David wants to pray, offer thanks, and bless his own household for this national mercy. Uh, it's amazing that he doesn't see his efforts complete until he blesses his household himself. But we have this issue with Michael. What is going on with her? What is her, what is her problem? It's pretty sad that in the, in the midst of this joyous occasion, we see Michael showing contempt for David, especially by the fact that this is his first wife, possibly even his favored wife. And yet, he, she has nothing but contempt for him. As I said, each section has a tragedy. The first tragedy was Uzzah, how, as he met his death. But this tragedy is Michael, who is, while not dying physically, it sure seems like it's the death of her relationship with, with David, as well as the maybe even a, a spiritual death. But when she saw him dancing, it says she despised him in her heart. Michael is really concerned with the royal dignity, the 
the proper decorum, really the outward appearances of David. She represents her father's religion. Notice that every time it refers to her, she's referred to as the daughter of Saul. It's like it says in the, in the New Testament where it says you can't put new wine in old wineskins. David's zeal for the ark was foolish in her eyes. And she falsely accuses him of improper dress to his dishonor. Well, let's look at David's response. He says, it was all designed to honor God. It was before the Lord that he was doing this, not for, not for his honor. He reminded her of God's choice of him over her father. He also said it was designed to humble himself. He embraced the humility he displayed and vowed further expressions despite her accusations. And he also doubted the dishonoring of the people. He knew they would esteem and honor him for his sincere love and devotion to the Lord. And then we had this, this last commentary on Michael where it says that she remained childless from that time forward. By unjustly reproaching David for his devotion, God justly puts her under the reproach of barrenness. So we see in this chapter that to bring to come to God, we must not, certainly have joy and and gladness and um, find in Him our our hope and our desire. But we also must realize that we come to a holy God. So, by way of application, as David and Israel needed to be reminded that a holy regard for God is worship that. Reminded that a holy regard for how God is worshipped produces a happy, holy people. So we too need to couple our joyous adoration with an appropriate fear of our majestic King and Lord. And it is only when we rejoice with trembling that we fully grasp who the God of Scripture is. He is the one who made us and who has brought us to himself in fulfillment of his covenant promises. Because of this... He lifts our burdens. But our consciousness of his love never leads us to forget the magnitude of his perfections. We are always delighted to be his, but also aware that he is a great and terrible God. Let's, let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you that uh, we can approach you, the one and only holy, uh, awesome God who is perfect, who is uh, deserving of all adoration. Lord, and yet uh, we do find in you our joy, our hope. We can come before you and rejoice knowing that we're accepted, that we're yours, and nothing can ever separate us from your love. Help us always to approach you uh, as you are in truth. Uh, recognizing that it's only because of your son who bore the wrath on our behalf and, uh, and in whose righteousness we stand before you, forgiven and, and cleansed and made holy. We thank you for this word today that we can see that uh, you invite your people uh, to come and worship you, and yet we'd only, we don't come just... Uh, out of any careless thought, but we come 
with an understanding of who you are and how we're to approach you. Help us to do that uh, every day, especially help us to do that this morning as we worship you together in the, the service. Uh, may we always uh, keep be mindful of who you are and all that you've done for us. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, any, any comments or questions about this, this chapter today? Yes? What was that reference to um, the ark being the footstool of the Lord? I didn't, I didn't know. Oh, that was First Chronicles um, 28.2. Yep. Anything else? Okay. Oh, sorry. Yes, Rob. <clears throat> Very Presbyterian. I don't. Well, it, it's, um, it's my understanding that uh, perhaps the tabernacle wasn't even still uh, standing, but there was a lot of... Uh, Gibeon was another location where there was a point of, a point of worship. And um, a lot of the commentators are, you know, are showing or are believing that, that David is being very careful not to... Not to um, you know, offend the Gibeonites. He's not doing this to say, okay, this is the one place where you can worship. He still acknowledges that, uh, you know, I think there are priests that are still at Gibeon. But, it, but he wants to move the nation of Israel to Jerusalem, believing that that, you know, that is where God has promised that he would, he would meet with his, holy, with his people. Um, but as far as the, the tabernacle's existence, uh, I'm not sure that it was, you know, was was still erected anywhere, but I'd have to look into that. I don't know. Maybe somebody else knows. Phil? Well, you know, I, one of the messages that I have heard through the years, and 
even speaks about this in his book, The Holiness of God. Uh, Sproul's take on it is, you know, that, that Uzzah felt like, apparently had the idea that it was better for him to touch it than it, for it to fall on the ground. Um, but obviously he was wrong. You know, he was 